Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 73 movies, one cage. Today we're talking about Wild at Heart from 1990. We've escaped the 1980s. We have moved past that point in Cage's career. We are into the 90s, where he's a bona fide Hollywood superstar for the next decade. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, we have another guest. We have Jordan Poland clark Hi. She is here to talk all about Wild at Heart, and we have a very special history of our friendship about Wild at Heart. This is where our friendship started. So yeah, the first time that we ever hung out, you and I watched this movie, and you fell asleep. Yeah, I didn't watch it. But you you loved it, right? You'd seen it already. I had seen it already. I had to watch this movie. I had a film professor at my first college who was obsessed with David Lynch, and it was the first film class I ever took, and that's pretty much all we watched was Lynch movies. Uh, so I had seen amazing. it. It was, except, like, what a strange way to present the entire film world to a group of college freshmen. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, sort of a trial by fire <laughs> this movie along with birdie and along with time to kill is based on a story it's based on a novel by barry gifford who jordan and i actually went to go see he did a little introduction for this movie a couple years ago in new york it's uh, wild at heart is the first in now eight stories about sailor and lula and it's a sort of epic love story that the eight novellas short stories whatever follow them from this is the beginning to the last one, at least the seventh one that I read, I haven't read the latest one, takes place when they're like grandparent age, like, you know, in their 60s or 70s. Like, it sort of spans their entire life, and it's pretty cool. I did not, I would not uh, count on this couple (laughs) making it to old age, but okay. Oh, no, I I would. I remember when we saw the um, when we saw the author speak. It was like the third or fourth time I had seen the movie, but he spoke about the books first or how after we saw it. I don't remember. It never occurred to me before what a beautiful love story this movie is, and it really is. They're so meant for each other. The only other love story in a movie that I love this much, and I take back what I said about Raising Arizona. This is my favorite Nicolas Cage movie, and I don't think it's going to get topped. The only other on-screen love story that I think can even come close to these two is in True Romance between Clarence and Alabama. Like, they're just, like, two perfect couples that no matter what the world throws at them, they're going to be together forever. It felt like that movie cribbed a lot from this story. You know, there are lots of differences. This isn't... These guys are not on a murder spree across the country or anything, but you're right. Like, there's definitely that mad love aspect to them. This movie, as we said before, is directed by David Lynch. Uh, So it's a very... It's one of the best, if not the best directors that Nicolas Cage has ever worked with, and they, he really sort of draws everything out of Cage. It's a tremendous, tremendous performance. But as it's a David Lynch movie, he brings along a lot of his friends, especially from Twin Peaks, which is happening at the same time. He brings with him Angelo Badalamenti, who did the soundtrack, but he also brings with him five characters from Twin Peaks. Do you guys Did you guys catch all five? Maybe. I definitely got two. So what are the, what are the two you got? Let's start with the big ones. I got the the girls. So the girl at the car accident uh, yep. wasn't that Audrey? Yeah, Audrey mm-hmm. Horn from Twin Peaks. Uh, what's her name? Sherry Lynn Fenn. And um, at the end is uh, Laura Palmer shows up at the end, right? The girl. She does. Yeah. So those are the two that that I definitely got. Jordan, any others before I unveil the trivia that I looked up? Yeah, the guy with the dog, the double lot spool guy. Yeah, Jack, Jack Nance plays Pete Martell, and then the other two that I didn't really catch, but Sarah Palmer. And Uncle Jerry from Twin Peaks are both in this movie, too. Where? Oh, uh, Laura's mother? Right? Yeah. yeah. She, I think, is one of the women involved or sort of with Isabella Rossellini, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, Isabella, I think it's her mother, the older blonde lady with the weird leg. Grace Abrinsky? 
Yeah, I guess that is her. She, plays she just looks Juana. so crazy. Yeah, she looks insane. She's like the, <laughs> in, in a movie filled when everyone looks crazy and she looks the craziest. Like, you know. No, she looks like a nightmare. Like, she's very scary. Uncle Jerry, the actor David Patrick Kelly, plays someone called Drop Shadow. Oh, okay. He's just with Grace Zabriskie. They're just together at the same time. Yeah, she she sort of travels with like her two hitmen. Like one, yeah, might he's be the the black guy one might of be her husband, and then the other guy that's there. Yeah, so he's the other guy. Okay, so it's just there's five Twin Peaks people along with Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti. That this is at the same time as Twin Peaks is the same time as Fire Walk with Me. It's all in that same sort of time period, and we'll get into that a little bit more with Industrial Symphony Number no. One. But it's all just sort of the world of Lynch as looked at or as sort of told through a Wizard of Oz metaphor and this beautiful love story. So one, one motif throughout the movie is fire. Like, everything is on fire. I mean, the first thing you see, I think, is a match getting struck. And it's like this heat, this hot, this passionate, everything. Everything is enveloped in this, or everything in this movie is enveloped by heat and intensity. And sort of all the characters, kind of like Raising Arizona, they're all driven by this passion. They're all elevated to this heightened level that the reason sort of Nicolas Cage fit in so well with Raising Arizona, why that movie was so great, is because everybody was sort of crazy. And I think that's sort of the case again here. Everyone is sort of heightened and exaggerated, but all still makes sense within the world that they live in. That striking of that match, too, is just foreshadowing, because it slowly starts to come out how Sailor and, Lu- Sailor and Lula, there's actually a lot of stuff they don't know about each other. And one of the things is that Sailor was there the night that Lula's father died in the fire. Mm-hmm. And But you don't find that out for quite a while in the movie. Uh, right. So it's a lot of foreshadowing with the fire and the cigarettes and the matches. And when, when we get to that, the, the story that is based on the book, the information about how Lula's dad died is a little bit different. Actually, it's pretty different from the story to the movie. But I think it actually works better in the movie which is kind of refreshing considering how poorly these other novel adaptations sort of have trans- translated into the screen. I really enjoyed that they're linked by this trauma, you know, and that the fire is like the symbol and, you know, they are sort of a wildfire themselves, you know, with their lust and passion sort of just like burning through life, you know what I mean? Just like enjoying it, like without, you know, thinking of, many consequences and i don't know it just felt like as they're driving cross-country they're like setting the world on fire in their own way too yeah they're leaving a trail behind them a blazing trail of everything they're doing in film school i had a really hard time like sitting through entire classes you know where the professor would be like and what does this thing mean and what does this thing mean and what's the symbolism in this and everyone would and you would talk about one thing for you know two hours this is the first time I remember having that experience was we were talking about the fire for like an entire class and I had a real hard time sitting through it. (laughs) There is a lot to say about it. No, there is. I get it. I totally get it. I just, it was the first time I had that experience of like, oh God, I can't do this. And it's weird that it's, the sort of the the central mystery of the story is almost to me like what happened to Lula, Lula's father, you know, and it's buried so deep within the plot that it's, you know, it's very significant. Yet in terms of the overall film, it's not treated that way. In the book, I'm pretty sure if I read this right, he just kills himself. Like the what Lula's like what Lula's mom tells Lula happens is what happens in the book that he just kills himself. David Lynch added this whole really dark subplot about how Lula's mom was having an affair with this criminal mastermind or, you know, this bad seed Santos, and the two of them conspired together 
to kill her husband, and Nicolas Cage was basically the getaway driver after they went in, soaked him in gasoline, and, and lit him on fire. So it's definitely like a real darker version of the story, and one where I think it really does make a lot more compelling, and you sort of you unfold it over the full two hours, that the more you sort of learn about these people, the more that they feel compelled to tell each other their secrets. Well, and also I think... It, the more they tell each other their secrets, the more you know we talk about them like they're these they're they are these fiery characters, but that doesn't often translate into fighting for them. They find out these secrets about each other, and she doesn't really seem very phased that he was there the night that her dad died. She doesn't blame him, she doesn't get upset with him for lying to her, really uh, that just speaks to their love, how great their love is. Yeah, it almost makes her, like, love him even more yeah. that she finds this out about him. Yeah, there's, like, this, they love each other, like, unconditionally, you know, like, even, like, they bring up each other's traumas, to, backstories to each other, you know, he mentions, like, she reminds her that she was raped, and, like, you know, she doesn't yell at him for that, she's like, now it's time to go dancing. <laughs> like, I mean, they just, they know, they're just willing to accept anything about each other, because, like, that's just how deep their love is. Even in, like, Bonnie and Clyde and, and stuff like that, like, they are they had like sexual problems and they argued and like even Mickey and Mallory got into arguments, you know, and when they shot that shaman and stuff, you know, so it's, it was pretty interesting to see, like they never exploded on each other in that way. You know, they always were just there for each other, no matter what. Even when like really big things are thrown on their faces, like when Lula finds out or sort of senses that she's pregnant, like it's a huge life change. And you see sailor light up two cigarettes to smoke. But he's just totally okay with it. Like, he's just there. No matter what happens to Lula, he's going to be right by her side. Even as he's lighting the two cigarettes, which is one of my favorite parts, the movie is, like, so dark, has been very dark for a while then. And that's the first, like, laugh moment in a while. Even as he's lighting up the two cigarettes and you're like, oh, no, he's stressed out, he's upset. I forget what he says, but whatever comes out of his mouth, it's it's very supportive. He's like, that's fine by me, Peanut, yeah, or something that's like that. In terms of where the movie's set, it's set in, it starts out in Cape Fear, which is somewhere, the movie says, quote, like somewhere between or near the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. They travel down through New Orleans, through Texas and Big Tuna, and ultimately on their way out to California, which they never really make it there. But all of these locations are new locations for Cage Club. We haven't really been in the South or Louisiana. I mean, we'll be back in Louisiana for Bad Lieutenant, but these are all sort of new areas of the country for Cage. Yeah, the Cape Fear was like, I'm, I'm, I'm jarred right from the beginning because I see Cape Fear and I'm like, what? I was like, there's like, not, I knew there was a real Cape Fear, but I'm like, I thought it was sort of off limits ever since the movie Cape Fear was like, you know, that's where the reference comes from. So I was already just sort of like, where are, what are we doing in Cape Fear? Where are we when this movie starts? I'm so confused right off the bat because we're leaving like a gala event and like. They're at some ballroom. The only, I mean, like, Lula's in a dress, but Lula's sort of in a dress throughout this entire movie. Lula's mom is really like the whole movie <laughs> that's that's also rub, true but yeah she she's either like very formal or very informal there's there's really no middle ground with lula i, I had um, an in-depth conversation with my roommates who had were seeing this for the first time about what was she carrying her clothes in during their traveling <laughs> because she didn't seem to be carrying any clothes but she changes her outfit constantly but we decided it was just because she mostly wears underwear so she didn't need to carry it in anything well you also find out a little bit later in the movie that they're running low on money so maybe she's just buying new outfits <laughs> along the way and then just throwing them out. Maybe that's the problem. 
Yeah, so they're at this big gala, and her mom, Lula's mom, is, like, dressed to the nines. She's in this really formal gown, uh, which really sort of clashes with what she's saying and what she's trying to do in the bathroom. Like, this, again, rivals Raising Arizona for, like, the best intro to a Cage Club movie. (laughs) Like, it's so aggressive and in-your-face and just, like, a, a a perfect intro. Like, it's not really... You can't really compare it to Raising Arizona, because that's, like, this 11-minute montage series of events. This is just a singular event. But, like, this, once again, tells you exactly what kind of movie you're going to see. And within the first five minutes of this movie, Nicolas Cage, defending himself in Lula, beats a man to death with his bare hands and gets sent to jail. Uh, again, sort of flashes forward of Con Air a little bit. <laughs> it's, like, you see right away that this guy comes to stab or to cut them, and Lula screams he has a knife, and then Cage just beats this guy to death. Well, he doesn't yeah, just so- beat him to death, though. Like, his brains fall out of his head. It's, yeah. like, over-the-top violent instantly. It's scary, guys. Like, I was scared. <laughs> like, I, like, for some reason, like, David Lynch scares the crap out of Like, his movies just do the way the way they're just so explosive and bipolar and like I, like this guy just walks up to him and accuses him of having sex with his girlfriend's mom in the in the toilet right and pulls a knife and is like I'm gonna cut you so like he's kind of defending himself you know like he is defending himself but he goes way too far and yeah beats the guy to death like in front of a crowd of people and it, and it kind of goes from like this classical music to right when cage like hits the guy it's like this explosive like heavy death metal too so like yeah i am like jarred out of my seat i'm like whoa like that was very that was quite a turn we just took and as soon as his actions stop the music goes right back to swing and it's like nothing ever happened like they're just like for everybody else like their life keeps going on but for cage and especially for this dead guy things have changed forever oh but even like a little bit later like going back to what you said that he is defending himself because marietta lula's mom is talking to harry dean stanton johnny farragut and he's like Marietta, like, he was defending himself. Like, he might have been, like, a little too aggressive, but, like, he's not a bad guy. Because this is sort of... I I don't know how how much to unpack here, because we don't... Sort of like the way that Lula's dad died, we don't really learn the full story of what happened in the bathroom, like, what led to this incident for most of the movie. Do you think we should talk about that now or later? Well, I suppose, like, we could talk about it now, since chronologically it's, it's sort of what, you know how it goes down because we could have a whole conversation just about the editing of this film as well and the way they reveal information but i think yeah for the purposes of the discussion we can we can reveal you know talk about things when they happen so sailor nicholas cage he plays sailor ripley i don't know if he ever said his full name he's in the bathroom just trying to pee and then marietta shows up super 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 drunk sort of jokingly, but also not really jokingly, asks him if he wants to have sex with her. There's really no context for this, right? Like, we don't know anything about these characters, necessarily. Like, we, like I'm going to assume this is why she hates Sailor in the first place, maybe? Uh, she's jealous of her dog? I'm not exactly sure what her motivation was. You know, was she just drunk? Is she trying to cause trouble yeah it was kind of strange and it was kind of funny to see nicholas cage sort of be like she's like i'm gonna kill you for not like screwing me and he's like you don't have to kill me you know <laughs> he's like, yeah you don't have to kill me to get to get me away from her or anything i don't know but it was very strange and uh, um for that to sort of be the inciting incident was uh hey it's lynch so i mean it, it worked 
I think, yes, yeah, she's definitely a crazy person who was probably trying to meddle and, like, get kind of slutty with him because she's a crazy person. But I thought maybe Marietta knew that Sailor was there the night her husband was murdered. And I thought maybe she knew or she knew that he knew she had something to do with it and she didn't want Lulu to find out. I thought maybe that was part of it, too. That, I think they do bring that up later. I think that's definitely something, but I don't know if that had anything to do with her trying to... I think that there's a lot of things going on here. Well, I think that she was just a little drunk at the party and wanted to have sex with him. But, but I just then... assume that's why she's trying to always get rid of him. That's part of the reason. He knows too much. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Like, he's linked to the father's murder. She can't find out the mom's responsible, so like, if, if, he, if Sailor ever tells Lula, like, you know, too much. I mean, she doesn't know what Sailor knows. So, you know, we've come to find out that there were other people there the night of the de- of the murder and stuff. So, yeah, I, I buy that. I-, I could go along with that, you know. It, it is so confusing, in- though. There's a lot of, like, peripheral characters that start to get involved that I could do without. They're a little bit confusing. In my mind, she goes up to that guy that Cage kills and I guess wants him to just, like, chase Cage out of there. Says, you know, like, use a little force if you have to, and then I don't think she realizes that Cage is gonna kill him, and then I think that when he does kill him, it's like enough of a justification to Johnny Farragut that she's like, okay, we need to we need to get him away from Lula because, like, look how dangerous he is. And that just sort of goes to serve her greater need that if he's not in Lula's life anymore, Lula's not gonna find out that Marietta went to murder... Their, her father, you know, like I don't know, like I think that like that sort of the incident at the beginning of the movie that gets Cage locked up in jail for almost two years is the visible reason why she doesn't want Lula to be with him, but she's got like these deeper motivations at play. Oh, I just assumed since she was so ready to kill him after he got out of jail that she was trying to kill him from the very start because she's crazy. It's kind of funny. It reminds me of like how there's like the stereotypical like people want to keep their daughter away from the guy who's like the bad influence. And this just sort of feels like that theme like amplified to a million, you know, where it's just like, you know, the parents always hate the boyfriend or they're overprotective and things like that. But like we're dealing with David Lynch. So the mother like needs to kill the boyfriend in order to deal with her problem and it was at the beginning of the movie that i i thought of uh thought of it in a way that i hadn't before and just because we're doing cage club i sort of got a little bit of a valley girl vibe like these star-crossed lovers who are destined to be together but like the world doesn't want them to be together sort of did you get that sense yeah there's definitely like they're fighting everybody else's like concept of them right like everybody's out like to sort of break them up and like you know to get it's like the love conquers all thing right i mean it's just like who cares what other people think like we're meant for each other well i think at the beginning of the movie the two of them do a really good job of keeping the rest of the world out and they're so much like on their own planet and all of that stuff people trying to break them up and the world being hard on them really doesn't get to them until like the middle of the movie and then you see them really start to struggle with it yeah it's almost at the point where they realize they're you know potentially they might be raising a family soon you know when like almost their reality comes crashing in and then they sort of have to start dealing with other people that live in the world too you know it's that's pretty interesting like further the movie goes, the more interaction they have with people aside from each other. Not, nothing can really ever keep them apart, not even those two years that he's in jail, or I think the, if I got, if I wrote the numbers right, the 22 months and 18 days, like this movie is very specific about time frames, but when, when he goes to jail, we see for the first time the Wizard of Oz motif pop up, like we see 
some woman over a crystal ball, and I don't know if that's the good witch, or I don't know if that's Marietta or somebody, but it seems like someone is sort of pulling the strings on this story. Well, in The Wizard of Oz, isn't it the Wicked Witch of the West that has that globe? Yeah, so, that, so, so I, it would be Marietta. Yeah, so I assume, I assume every time I watch it that it is Marietta. I think now might be a good time, Mike, to set up your, so people listening, and so we can sort of frame our conversations around it, you have a great way that the characters all line up to the characters in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so, I mean, I had heard that The Wizard of Oz factored into this film, but I was I was sort of looking... I was looking for it, obviously, and then, you know, it, they start talking about the Yellow Brick Road or the Emerald City, and it's all a lot of mentioning of it, but I wasn't really finding any symbolic... Ref- like, there's no little people in this movie to represent munchkins, you know what I'm saying? There's no, like, direct references, but then I was looking at, like, the characters and stuff. So just purely based on the way the characters sort of carried themselves and looked, I, I assigned each of them a character from The Wizard of Oz. So Mama, the mother, is obviously the Wicked Witch. I mean, we even see her on a broomstick and, and like, dressed as the Wicked Witch, which is... Yeah, there's, there's no debating that one. Johnny, uh, I thought, was the, the lion, the cowardly lion, because he's sort of more of, like, the sheepish guy, and, I don't know, his face got a, looked like the cowardly lion to me. He never really stands up for himself, and Johnny, just for... Because there's a whole lot of characters we're we'll talking about. Johnny is Marietta's boyfriend, except she's also still kind of with Santos. He's kind of her timid boyfriend that she sends to kill them later in the movie. He's the first person that she sends to kill them. Yeah, she really pull, sort of pulls out all the cards and basically like hires everybody she knows to try to go kill Nicolas Cage. Yeah, and he's like an official detective. He's not like a hitman or a murderer or anything like that. He's purely just trying to locate the kids and like find and out where they are. He's sort of the most normal character in this entire movie. Like he's the only one that like has sort of a sense of like he, like he's the only one who can see reason in people. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else is just like so into what they're doing that they they can't see the bigger picture. The next character, um, I'm going to go with Santos here. I'm I'm calling him out as the Tin Man. Now, two reasons behind that. At one point, he wears a silver suit, Ooh. so that sort of set off a trigger. And the other is he's uh, he deals with the the coins, you know. So like the silver coins kind of reminded me of like the Tin Man and all that. And he like wields a weapon, right? Like he's a hitman, and the Tin Man had an axe. So I, I gave him the Tin Man. <laughs> what I also like about that comparison is that Santos is like this ruthless killer, and what do killers not have? They don't have a heart, and neither does the, the Tin Man. Yeah, when you so said think, that that's who he was, that's the first thing I thought. Well, he's, he's like the most evil person in the movie, so he doesn't have a heart. Awesome. Perfect. Next up is Sailor, and uh, Sailor is the Scarecrow. Uh, no brains. <laughs> Well, he does beat the brains out of some guy in the opening scene. That's true. (laughs) Just like his features and the way he moves, you know, I mean, he's obviously impersonating Elvis in this film. Even Elvis sort of had like a scarecrow rhythm to his like dancing and his karate and stuff. I don't know. I I got a lot of scarecrow and also because scarecrow was sort of Dorothy's best friend and, and I got Lula as Dorothy. Yeah, I think Lula as Dorothy is another one that's sort of, you can't deny it. The only other thing like visibly about Sailor is that sometimes when his hair gets all ruffled, it sort of looks like straw coming out. <laughs> like it's all sort of on all sides. And I mean, plus that snakeskin jacket is gold, and so that's sort of the color of straw a little bit. Finally, just the one, I was like, who's the wizard? Who's the wizard? Someone's gotta be the wizard. So like, I, I wasn't sure who the wizard was, but the, I think Mr. Reindeer. I'm giving it to him. <laughs> I think Mr. Reindeer's the wizard just because he's this old eccentric, like, maniac behind the scenes. And don't forget, there's a very literal good witch. There's a very literal good witch at the end. 
when, when Laura Palmer herself drops in and is the good witch and sort of saves, brings Sailor back to life, essentially. But going back to that snakeskin jacket, the color of straw, the color of Scarecrow himself, did you guys know, and I read this, I think I knew this a long time ago, but I forgot, that that was actually Cage's jacket? That that was a jacket that he owned and he convinced David Lynch to let him wear in the movie? I did not know that. And then when the movie was over, he gave it to Laura Dern, I guess as like a token of them working on the movie together. And apparently, and this, I'm not sure, I haven't checked this beyond IMDb, so this might all be based on a lie, but supposedly he wanted to wear the jacket in a tribute to Marlon Brando in a movie called The Fugitive Kind, and The Fugitive Kind was based on a play or a stage production called Orpheus Descending, and apparently Orpheus Descending was written by Tennessee Williams, who is also Laura Dern's cousin, which is weird, and apparently Diane Ladd, who plays Marietta and who is Laura Dern's mother, met Bruce Dern, Laura Dern's father, on the set of an Orpheus Descending production. Wow. So, like, I don't know, like, that, that all sort of seems, like, too coincidental, but if that's true, that's, like, the like a perfect journey and sort of a perfect everything for this jacket. Yeah, it's serendipitous, right? Like, I mean, it just, it was meant to be. I mean, the jacket just fits, it's a character in unto itself, you know, <laughs> like, or, or at least it, it, re- it definitely represents Sailor, I'll tell you that much, he lets you know that. When Lula picks him up after he's been in jail for 22 months, not only does she pick him up, not only is he there, she there for him, but she brings for him this jacket. Hey, my snakeskin jacket! Thanks, baby! Did I ever tell you that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? About 50,000 times. So after Lula picks him up at prison, they go, I guess, it seems like they probably just rent, like, the closest hotel room, and they just have sex for the next, well, I'm sorry, he compromises her for, <laughs> oh, the, yes. next, like, yes, yes. for the next, like, three minutes or so, do you and, wanna, like, it's just... Do you want to explain to Jordan <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> why we use the term compromise now? So in The Boy in Blue, Jordan, which took place in, like, the 1870s, 70s. Uh-huh. This one woman that Nicolas Cage was in love with talked about now. Now she knows what it feels like to be compromised. <laughs> um, and so whenever we're talking about sex, now we just have to talk about compromise because it's just it's the best way to talk about it. And we're bringing it back, basically. Oh, bringing it back. I don't. I don't know if it was ever here, but oh. it seems like it should have been here maybe 150 years ago. Yeah, we're making it. But I wrote down that this is Cage at like peak sexuality. Like he's been ripped. He's been shirtless in every movie, but like. This is him at his most passionate, his most... You know what I mean? Like, he's just... I wrote wrote this down, like, several times. Because I'm a lady. I'm a lady. And he's not... He's not attractive. Like, I would not look at Nicolas Cage, even when he was younger, and be like, yes, that guy. But... In this movie especially, he is just, like, electric. Like, he's so sexual, and he's, like, so hot. Just something about him, he just goes to this place. And Laura Dern, like, matches him. Like, every beat with just, like, pure sexuality matches his. Well, she never stops breathing heavy, and neither does the mom. (laughs) For the entire movie, both of them just sound like... For every, they're either angry or they're having sex, and that's what they sound like for the entire movie. They're always heated. They're always passionate Very. about something in one way or the other. 
they are like the horniest people in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, like basically, like everything turns them on, like things about each other, things that they see, things they're talking about. Like after like everything they do, they have to go and bone. It's just necessary. Oh, and I love, I'm skipping ahead, but yeah, I mean, when he's, when he's telling her about that girl, he's telling her about the peach girl. Like, she's so turned on that they have to leave the restaurant. Just <laughs> told her that story. I knew I had an important lesson to learn that day. When she got almost to the top step, I stuck my hand between her legs from behind. Mmm, baby, what a bad boy you are. Mm, baby, what a bad boy you are. <laughs> Well, that's just what she said. Ma'am, I had a boner with a capital O. Anyway, I found her lying in a room filled with assault weapons and spank house magazines. So I slid my hand between her legs again and she closed her thighs on it. Exciting me, honey. And what'd she do? Well, her face was half pushed into the pillow and... I remember she, she looked back over her shoulder at me and, and said, um, I won't suck you. Don't ask me to suck you. Oh, poor baby. She doesn't know what she missed. What color hair she have? Jet black. But gentlemen prefer blondes. Anyway, dig this. She turns over, peels off them orange pants, spreads her legs real wide, and... Uh, says to me take a bite of peach but isn't that so sweet for a couple to talk like that and then just have to go compromise each other <laughs> so you're getting it you're getting it <laughs> it's it's honestly like a little surprising maybe not but in terms of like what we've been told you know in terms of literature or whatever that lula is so sexual because we find out that she was raped by a family friend not too long ago and this is another movie, like three of the last four movies that we've watched have been with rape, have dealt with rape. But this is one where it wasn't Cage's fault. But she was raped by, what they say, her uncle, whatever, but it's not her actual uncle, just like a family friend. Yeah. That guy never comes back. Like, he's just only No, in because the movie he and... got killed. Yeah, I remember she's like, he died in an auto wreck on vacation. and they, The mom they murdered sort of, him. And the car is like tumbling down the hill. Yeah, and I sort of got the idea that someone in someone who knew he did it was involved with like fixing the bridge. I don't know. I just, like, I, I just thought like, it was the mom. I thought she just yeah. murdered everybody. Yeah, that's a kind of flash. And I was like, oh, he didn't die. He was like, he was taken care of. But that's but where not- I started to pick up, like, because, you know, we, the way it's edited, we see what actually happened while Lula right. is telling the kind of lie story that she must tell people. Um, and she's telling it to Sailor. She's lying to Sailor. And I don't, and that's a lie that she never comes clean about. And that's I when think, I started I to think, like, knows. yeah, she, really? I thought maybe she knew. I feel like no, in we this probably world. Right. I feel like in this world, like, her mom, like, wants to infantilize her and never tells her any of the truth, goes about and, like, takes care of all this business behind her back and just says, oh, he, he died in a car crash. Oh, your father set himself on fire. I guess um, the reason I thought that was because she knows she had an abortion and she lied about that, too. Right, but she yeah. withholds that, if, right? She never even, yeah. I don't think, I don't think Sailor even knows that she had an abortion, um, no, she never tells the truth. Yeah, and she even withholds information later, you know, towards the end of the film when she has an encounter with another guy. She never really gets the opportunity to tell Sailor about that. And it's sort of about at this point in the movie. Like, we're not that far into the movie. We're only about, like, 15 minutes into the movie. <laughs> no, man. Um, this is crazy. <laughs> but 
as like Lula, Sailor and Lula are sort of starting to tell each other a little bit about their lives, you also see at the same time Marietta is hiring Johnny Farragut to go kill him. She's calling up Santos, even though Johnny Farragut says, do not get Santos. Like, he knows what that's going to bring. And you're, you're sitting there wondering, like, why is she so against Sailor? Like, he killed this guy at the start of the movie, but, like, she does not want him with Lula at all. And that's when you find out through the editing that Mike was talking about before, you see the flashback to the bathroom, you see that he refuses sex with her, and you sort of start to put the pieces together. But I think it's a, it's really interesting, and it's, it also goes back to what Jordan was just saying, the characters don't have the full story in this movie, so, like, really, why should you? Like, you're everybody's sort of trying to figure out what's truth and what's fiction. Yeah, and I, I think that even goes for, like, what they emphasize. So, like, going back to the opening fight scene when Kate, you know, we see it and it's horrific and it's, you know, god-awful and all this, but is that even the way it really happened, or is that just the way that Lula perceived it as? You know, is it just horrific for her from that character's point of view or is that really how bad it was like i was going through this movie you know at least halfway through this movie i started to turn and say like what is real and what is you know exaggerated and what exactly is happening here (laughs) trying to see if there's like a clear distinction anywhere it's a little bit like vampire's kiss in that regard that we don't really have necessarily a faithful narrator like you don't really know what's going on i mean in vampire's kiss you have a real clear sense of like what's not happening but for a while you don't really know what to believe and in this one you sort of never really know like you were just saying how true the stuff that's portrayed on screen actually is so we we cut back to sailor and lula after they've been having sex for a whole long time nicholas cage says to her says laura dern we got some dancing to do and they go to the club and when they get to the club like this whole club scene just feels so much like that club scene in fire walk with me like, everything's dark and red and loud. I think we get a really good sense of, like, the types of places that David Lynch was spending his free time <laughs> in, like, 1990 and 1991. So, funny enough, like, I used to actually listen to, like, this psychobilly type of speed rockabilly music in high school a lot. <laughs> like, it kind of brought back, like, memories for me. Not that I went, like, clubbing, like, these places or anything, but definitely, like, the style and everything like that I was, was kind of familiar to me. But, yeah, uh, this club... Thank you for giving that a, a name. I was like, what kind of music in this? It's not metal. And in my brain, I could not place it, and you just gave it such a good genre for me. Thank you. Psychobilly rock. I feel better. Elf. Yeah, like, rock, rockabilly is sort of kind of elfasy, right? And then psychobilly is just, like, that, like, sped up and, like, intensified? Is that Yeah, it's, right? like, high-speed pop country and then psychobilly is like that with like um even faster with like um electric instruments just a little more aggression this is just like another great scene because their passion that they've seen through the entire movie like cage killing the guy them having sex like nothing they do is halfway like everything is turned up to 11 they they're dancing is insane and it's i love it like they're just going for it in this part of the movie they're still like really really on their own planet still and you really really see that when they're dancing together yeah and you also definitely see like the elvis in in sailor because uh i don't know if you guys are into elvis very much but like i used to watch like his concerts and things and stuff like that and like he just would walk around stage and like do karate kicks (laughs) 
and especially like toward like the end of his career when he when Elvis went Hawaiian and stuff and started wearing his big flashy jumpsuits and like he was way into karate so it was just great to see Cage was like well Elvis was like into karate did that so like I'm gonna be like Sailor's dance moves are all gonna be like kung fu kicks and karate chops and spin kicks and stuff like that I just thought it was great and we get a real dose of Elvis in a little bit but not before some guy he approaches Lula and like like creepy guys doing clubs just sort of gets a little bit too physical with her Sailor stops everything in the entire club and demands an apology from this guy. This is where you start to wonder if they're, like, can they manipulate reality? Like, it's like Jordan said, is it truly, are they in their own world, in their own minds or something like, because he is, like, controlling things with the wave of his hand, you know? (laughs) He just, like, puts a hand up in the air and the band stops and everyone is, like, looking at him and just giving him, like, space to say what he needs to say. I don't know, it was just awesome. Well, what I also love, and I think it just only this way to make it great for filming is that when they're dancing like everybody's so clumped together but they have like this whole like swath of space like they're at the center of everything you know what i mean yeah and then he comes up to her and then like they are visually in terms of the film the center of attention and then as soon as he stops everything they're the literal center of attention in the story and the guy eventually does give the apology because i mean who are you like who are you to refuse sailor ripley like he and he, he, and he, he makes kill fun you. of the snakeskin jacket he's like look at that jacket man that jacket sucks and stuff <laughs> you do not make fun of that jacket that jacket represents sailor's individuality you know and his you know, sense of uh, expression yeah because they do really really they're on their own planet in this part and but i think that's something david lynch is really good at like in other movies if this had happened like in a different director might have dealt with it differently i might not have been as on board but when this happens in this movie it is it's like yeah this is what's happening i'm totally on board with this let's go (laughs) i totally appreciate it too because like it reveals the to the audience that it's a movie you know what i'm saying like it, it lets you know on another level that you're watching a movie you know like these they're breaking the laws of reality you know like these are not things you can do in real life i mean you know well you can't do some of the other things in this movie in real life either but i'm just saying you know on a purely surreal level like this is just just draws your attention to the fact that yes like this is not a documentary this isn't like a normal narrative film this is a crazy movie in normal movies in normal life You can't just stop everything that's happening and demand an apology and then turn to the band and say, hey, you know this one? And then get handed a microphone and then just sing Treat Me Like a Fool, which is so perfect. I don't care that it's so long. I want to play the whole thing right now because it's so great. Are you going to provide me with an opportunity to prove my love to my girl? Or are you going to save yourself some trouble? Step up like a gentleman and apologize to her. Don't fuck with me, man. Look like a clown in that stupid jacket. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Asshole. Come here. I'm sorry to do this to you here in front of a crowd and all, but I want you to get up and apologize to my girl. I'm sorry. 
My hell. <laughs> he just bumped up against the wrong girl, is all. That's good. Now go get yourself a beer. You fellas have a lot of same power E had. Y'all know this one? Everything is just like amazing, but it's like the it's like the screaming girls from the Ed Sullivan show, yes. and you could totally tell that and that they're a sample, and he's like dropping the sample over and over like that. Yes, yeah. it's like so perfect, and like it just I don't know, it's perfect. Well, it's perfect. I, wrote, I I thought that's I mean because the way that Lula is looking at him, like when he's singing like that, like that's her teen idol, like that's who he is to her. And, mm. and that's, I mean, that's why it fit in for me. Yeah, he is, he is her Fabian to go back to Peggy Sue. <laughs> oh, got yeah, married. to go back to Peggy Sue. <laughs> I mean, we've had, this is only the 15th movie in Cage Club, but he's sung in, like, several movies. Yeah, it's, it's staggering. Like, and, and it's even crazier how much better he's gotten as a singer. So I think the first time to take a, to take a slight detour, the first time he sang that I remember was in Racing with the Moon, right? Yes. And he was awful, but I think looking back now, he must have been like intentionally awful. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, he was definitely out of tune. And then am I missing anything? The next one is when he's basically the coolest guy in high school, and in Peggy Sue got married, and he's sort of like this character. He's like this character before this character grew up. Well, he's like the, yeah, he's like the wussy version of this guy. Like, he has the look, he just doesn't have the attitude, and he was the leader of, like, a doo-wop band. He has the voice, but not the swagger. And then in this one, like we were saying earlier, like, he's just 100% pure sex, and it's just, the like, I don't, I can't, like, <laughs> nobody can do this song better than him except for Elvis. Like, it's just so good. Yeah, it's 
one of the it's like this is one of the movies where I'm going to tell people like you think Nick Cage is a joke like you have no idea what you're talking about because like you have to go watch Wild at Heart like he it's like he's not even I mean like he goes <laughs> like he's doing his own thing and then he becomes Elvis at this moment it's like yes yeah. it's, it's spooky to me Lula loves it like she is like George was saying she's like this is her idol like this is everything she wants but she asks him why didn't you sing Love Me Tender. And he says, I'm only going to sing that for my bride. And she's like, all right, I get it. Like, like that's fair. And then they go and they have uh, more sex. Well, I'm sorry. He compromises her. Uh, <laughs> and, and this time, I don't know if you've been keeping track, but like every time they do that, they have like a different color sort of fills the screen. So like, no, like the first time they do it, it's red. And then this time it was like yellow. Um, and then later on, it's another. I think it's another Wizard of Oz rainbow because uh, reference because they literally have sex like over the rainbow. It's like yellow blue. <laughs> it's like the whole Roy G. Biv, you know. <laughs> I did not notice uh, that. But at the same time, it, it's it's fitting that we're talking about the Wizard of Oz because every time they mention the Wizard of Oz, I wrote down right around this time they're talking about the Wicked Witch. Is there some evil force that's sort of conspiring against them? Sailor baby, you ever think something? And hear a wind and see the wicked witch of the east coming flying in. I really did miss your mom while I was out of pity, baby. The rest of you too, of course, but the way your head works is God's own private mystery. I'm inclined to agree with Sailor on that because earlier, like, she goes on a couple, like, little rants here and there, but she talks about, like, the sun being so bright that it blew a hole through the earth, and and <laughs> Sailor's like, ah, come on now, honey, that ain't gonna happen till we're long gone. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's very afraid of the apocalypse. Oh she's, yeah, she's very worried about the world. I think that also goes back to maybe, and I'm not sure if this necessarily is, but Marriott has so babied her. Like, if we operate under the assumption that she knows nothing, that she doesn't know about how her dad died, that she doesn't know that her mother killed the family friend, that like she's been like placed in this bubble. And she's worried about things outside the bubble because there are things beyond her control. Maybe. I'm not sure if that necessarily plays, but it could sort of work. Yeah, you sort of see that from some people who are like overprotective or overprotected by their, you know, you got like these helicopter parents raising these like paranoid kids, you know. So it like kind of makes sense that like she's out in the world now free for the first time with her boyfriend and like no parental guidance uh, that, you know, she she might have some anxiety disorders about the end of the world. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, even Sailor says, you know, he never really had any parental guidance growing up either. So they're they're an interesting mix. And you find out really quickly how little parental guidance they had because, like, this is one of their many like secret sharing moments in the movie. And they're talking about when they first started smoking. And what does Lula say? Like, she was like nine or like thirteen. Like, she was young, but like also kind of maybe close to appropriate you know what i mean and then you find out how old sailor was when did you start smoking sail i guess i started smoking when i was about four my mom was already dead then from lung cancer what brand did she smoke marlboro's same as me i guess both my mama and my daddy died a Smoke or alcohol-related illness. Please say, honey, I'm sorry. It's okay, honey. I didn't hardly used to see them anyways. I didn't have much 
parental guidance. They talk about smoking for a while and like how, you know, everyone like in her family either died of drinking or smoking or some some such related incident. And then they they smoke like chimneys throughout the rest of the movie <laughs> too. It's so it's so contradictory, but like so many things in this film are but that's what makes it so awesome. But it's at this moment that there's another one of my favorite lines in the movie that they're just in bed after they compromise one another and they're telling these secrets and then like he he like hugs her like he pulls her close and she says something like you know you're perfect for me like you're everything that I want and then he like pulls the bedsheet down and looks down at her boobs and says you're perfect for me too. Not even making eye contact, just like all driven by sex and like this is exactly like it was just such like a funny little thing that if you look away, you know, it doesn't sound out of the ordinary, but just like where he's looking, it's just so sailor. Well there's this really interesting shot at one point where they're talking in bed and the, it's sort of from above and they're both under the sheets, but it really looks weird. Like they almost look like if you pulled the sheet apart, they'd be like conjoined twins or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, they're you... like puzzle piece together. Yeah, yeah. So like it's weird. Like he's looking at her body and he's like looking at part of himself and she sees the same in her, you know. I don't know. That's sort of how I, I took that. Oh, see, like, as a girl, like... that's different when you see a guy do that. Uh, <laughs> in, a, in a way, it made me feel sad for her for a second because it is still the beginning in the movie and she still is this kind of little lost girl with this guy who maybe she doesn't know that well and maybe he doesn't know her that well. And she's like, basically like, I love you so much. And he's like, yeah, boobs. But like the way <laughs> she, the way she kind of responds to it. I mean, I don't know. It bounces off her pretty easily in a way that makes you go, yeah, okay, yeah, they're good together. They do sort of like, not maybe not intentionally, they do kind of throw insults at each other unintentionally and stuff, and they just sort of roll roll with it. So it's possible that like she's like, oh, you don't, you know, you're just, you just love my body. You're objectifying me in this moment. Ah, uh, whatever. Like, I know you might not realize you're doing that. Yeah, and I think that happens often because they're both dumb in their own ways about kind of different things and they really end up complimenting each other in those ways do we ever get a sense because they're they're also really both very young like she says at one point that she's 20 do we ever find out how old he is no but i assume it's older than her so at this point in real life he's like 26 i don't know if he's i don't think he's necessarily that old in the movie but he's definitely several years older than her i think well how old was she when her dad died i think the only time frame that we have is the dad died a year before they met. He was old enough to drive a car then. Right. So I don't know, because we never see her. Actually, no, we do. Don't we see her when they see her walking around? She seems like she's probably like 16. So I'm guessing that that was like four years ago. That doesn't really help us figure out the age. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how old they are, because they are very young. I'm also trying to figure out how long they've known each other for. It could be so another they... factor as to why the mother's so upset. Like, if Sailor turned out to be, like, 30 or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it could set her off, you know, being the older man taking advantage of her baby. Well, I guess, okay, so if Lula's 20 and she spent the previous two years waiting for Sailor to get out of prison, let's say she was, like, about 18 when he went to prison... If she was, like, 16... I don't know. Like, they haven't known each other very long. Like, they don't really know much about each other, but they, all they know, sort of, is that they think they're meant for each other. Yeah, it's... it's. I call it... It's like the Cupid syndrome, you know? Uh, it feels like they fell in love at first sight. Because she waits for him for 22 months, and, you know, apparently we think that she's been faithful. We don't hear her, her say she has been unfaithful. Right. Like, she's there. She's there to pick him up, you know? She 
definitely like loves this guy and he's definitely happy to see her too and they're off together so i don't know it's very strange but we've seen this before like again in valley girl you know there's really no reason for those two people to be together or like each other like they're so different they have such different interests and nothing in common yet like they look at each other and that's all it took right like as soon as they saw each other's eyes that that was all they needed so maybe it's one of those situations while all this is happening we see marietta is now calling Santos and, like, tells Santos to hire people to kill Cage, and he hires two different people to kill Cage? Is that what the, the Silver Dollars are? They're, they're just... The one's to kill Johnny. Oh, the one's okay. to kill Johnny, oh. and one's to kill uh, Sailor. This is the part of the movie where I start to lose it a little bit. I get confused. Well, there's a whole lot of moving parts at this point. There are. Yeah, because Santos comes over and uh, and the and the mother, you know, this after the mom like freaks out and paints her face with lipstick and everything. Yeah, I have a story about that part. I saw this movie in college, and that scene came on, and I was like, I've seen this before, and I had a really strange memory of seeing that scene as a child and being like so scared and knowing I was watching something so weird, and it was just the weirdest feeling to then see the movie again. And be like, what that? And it was like <laughs> stuck somewhere, like way in the back of my brain in my memory. And it was a really weird feeling. That's it. Continue. That's awesome. <laughs> There's like this really weird sort of like eyes wide shut dinner that they go to. Oh, yeah. At Mr. Reindeer's house. Yeah, so Mr. Like, Reindeer, the, the Wizard of Oz himself. Yeah, he's like the guy that, that sets up all like the assassinations and stuff or all the hits. Like he puts like the guy in contact with the killers and then gives them the info. I think that's sort of why things get so confusing. Well, it's such an elaborate, like, system, you know, and they end up meeting... So, let me just explain the system real quick. Mr. Reindeer's like, all right, like, if you got a problem, put the number of coins (laughs) that relate to the number of problems you have in my mail slot, right? And then, like... So he, so then one of the hitmen shows up with the coin, and he's like, ah, oh, I forgot to give you the contents of this envelope. So like, yeah. he was going to see the guy face-to-face anyway. <laughs> it's just so unnecessarily bizarre. But like, even to get there, Marietta hires Santos, or tells Santos. Santos then tells Mr. Reindeer, <laughs> and then Mr. Reindeer has to go hire these two other people, and even that he screws up. Yeah, he like, calls there's so many different blonde people. He calls Isabella Rossellini, and then the older-looking Isabella Rossellini. I right, thought they were it, twins. They, they look, I guess, they, they look so much twins? alike. No, I thought one's I the know. mom and one's the daughter. But one of them, you find out later in the movie, worked with Cage, I think, during that time when he killed, or he was there when Lula's dad died, because they have this, like, pact. Like, if there's a contract out on either one of them, they'll tell the others. So, like, there's this whole, like, interwoven, interlocking mythology between all these characters, and we're all just there like, wait, what is going on? Because, like, literally like, ten minutes earlier, Marietta was like, all right, Johnny, go to New Orleans, get Lula back. And then, like, it's just like, all right, all right, we're going to have, like, these other eight people now all, like, try to do the same sort of thing. Like, it feels like there's a a whole, like, reel missing from this movie, but I love it because it will sort of all come together, you know what I mean? Like, at the moment, I'm confused, but I have faith in this film just because up until this point, it's shown me so many great things that I'm sort of still rolling with it, even though, yeah, I'm like, uh, I don't know where this is going. So the next real big thing in the movie... And it's just like another story, and maybe I missed a connection, but it's a real big Cage connection because Crispin Glover is back for the third oh Nicolas God. Cage movie. This is and like he plays amazing. he plays Dell, and this is he's Lula's cousin. Is that what she said? Like she starts to tell a story about her cousin. 
to Sailor? Is that what I think so, yeah. Is that okay, do you want to explain? <laughs> I don't I don't even think I can explain. He's just like <laughs> he's a crazy like, person. Yeah, so she says I had this cousin Dale, like who wasn't quite right. He loved Christmas, right? He's like obsessive about Christmas. And then they sh- sort of show like a flashback or like the side story, and and like a cop is dropping him off in like a dirty Santa outfit at his house. And he's almost like so filthy that you can't even tell it's Crispin Glover. Yeah, I didn't. No, know. the, the like only this... reason I knew was because I looked it up. And eventually he cleans himself up, but like he, there's, he's just like this like filthy Santa clad guy yeah like a real real thin like crispin glover thin just like in the middle of july yeah and if you told him like christmas wasn't for a couple months he would like scream his head off and then he believed that aliens wearing black gloves were taking over the world so like he had an aversion to black gloves and stuff eventually he sort of got over that i don't think he ever got over that i think he eventually like someone told him I think the way Lula describes it is, like, he found out that he was the one wearing the black gloves, and, like, that freaks him out even more. I'm not sure what transitions him, but he gets, like, out of the Santa suit and then becomes, like, an obsessive sandwich maker. Like, he just, like, makes thousands of sandwiches. (laughs) And And his mom comes down to, like, this has nothing to do with anything. Well, she was trying to make a point, wasn't she? I cannot remember what it was. (laughs) It didn't really make sense. Yeah, finish the story. Maybe at the end of the story, the point will emerge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like yeah so like the mom comes down and asks what he's doing and he screams that he's making lunch then she finds cockroaches in his underwear and then there's like a little scene where you see crispin glover like moving and dancing outside of his house because he's got like bugs in his pants yeah, uh and she's little, like little... well he just disappeared one day and no one no one ever heard of him again when they brought up cockroaches all i could think of was vampire's kiss yeah okay so mike you, you finished the story though like i don't i still don't see a point there was though. a like... setup there was like something prompt her to tell that story i can't remember what it was because i don't think it made that much sense but there was a reason you know nicholas cage was talking about something and she was like oh you know it's like my cousin dell and like it was loosely related for a second and then it was a long story for no reason but it's also i guess probably just crispin glover not really having much work <laughs> just well and it's also know. i feel like lynch does these things often to kind of create like a tone and create like to me it gives me like a weird feeling inside my soul and And in your pants probably yeah (laughs) i can't always tell like what it means or why but it makes me feel something to me it feels like world building you know like these are just like the type of people in the world that they live in you know there's crazy people out there you know uh like i almost thought at one point like in this version of reality is like is the earth's access like just slightly off causing everybody to be like just a little crazy and act (laughs) a little more nuts or something like honestly like is there a reason behind it but i at this time in lynch's work you know like the twin peak stuff and the and this like it's it feels very much like a shared universe you know in in the marvel sense where like absolutely these guys might show up in Twin Peaks for a weekend looking for some good coffee. The next scene again brings you into that sort of shared universe because they're driving down the road. They they stop at a gas station and Lula takes over driving. Like it seems like pretty much for most of the movie, Sailor just sort of takes care of Lula. Like he's always just there. She just has to sort of exist, which I guess... Well, he's very fatherly. She's not really super empowered in this movie. And then the one time she sort of takes control she's driving as cage is resting and she's just trying to find something good on the radio and i think this comes back to her fear of the apocalypse all she hears is like bad news and she pulls over and she freaks out and she gets out of the car and says sailor i need you to find something good on that radio 
I'm not I'm not getting back in that car until we have something that I want to listen to. Yeah, and he uses those magic powers again. Like it almost seems like the radio is like a conduit for their like inner thoughts or emotions like she's driving and all she can think about is like the end of the world or like terrible things and you know people dying and like as soon as he touches the radio like the the psychobilly music comes on and like he flips out of the car and they start dancing and stuff so it's it's almost as like it's a projection of themselves in in this scene come on in there san antonio texas what's on your almost perfect mind this evening I just had triple bypass, open heart surgery, and I want you to know it's people like you that made me want to get out of that hospital. Anybody listen to this crowd? The severed for her recent divorce shot and killed her three children aged seven. Shot right between a heinous. A local judge praised defendant John Roy, but was dismayed to learn that Roy had had sex with the corpse. Roy's lawyer was quoted as saying, State authorities last October released 500 turtles into the Ganges to try and reduce human pollution, and now plan to put in the crocodiles to devour floating corpses. The Uttar Pradesh State. What's up, Nina? I can't take no more of this radio. I never heard so much shit in all my life. Sailor Ripley, you give me some music on that radio. This ends, and I made it. He was victim of a sexual assault. <laughs> There are two things I noticed in this scene. One, I can't remember if it's before or after the news thing where they jump out of the car, but there's that Chris Isaac song is playing. And it's the first time that there is some reference to like the current time because he was like a current musical artist. And so for a second, not even for a second, it's kind of the part of the movie. And because she's also, this is the part of the movie where she's listening to the news. The news is on the radio and it's like the real world is like coming at her in her face. It really is kind of like an omen for like what's about to happen and that they are leaving like their dream world where it's just the two of them. Because after this scene, the movie is different. It's, it's very sort of a, a tale of two halves. Like when they have money versus when they don't. Like when they're when when life is okay, then all of a sudden when they're when they have to when they're backstrap up against the wall and they have to sort of figure out how to get forward, it is like a very different movie. I was just thinking about how that how the structure of the film might even relate to Wizard of Oz and like even those characters had to go through like a deep dark forest at one point. They had you know, the movie changes drastically after they meet the wizard and they have like a whole new movie to do where they have to go kill the witch and stuff. So like there comes a point in these fantasy films even where everything goes from just like rosy and sunny and everything's going okay to suddenly like the shit's getting real, the real world problems, like we gotta deal with them, like, you know, and the rest of the film sort of is about that. Really the the transition from the first half to the second half happens on this drive because I think Mike mentioned it earlier they look at the side of the car and just Marriott is on a broomstick <laughs> just riding alongside the car even though they're driving away from New Orleans driving away from Johnny and the mom she's with them like she's going to be following them and no matter where they go she's going to be there yeah and that was a symbolic image in Wizard of Oz Dorothy knew she wasn't in Kansas anymore you know <laughs> she wasn't in a safe place she wasn't in her home she was traveling outside of her comfort zone and she sees the wicked witch it's like that's what she sees on her way 
to Oz. And like pretty literally the next thing they see is just clothes. And it's like a beautiful image. And I mean, Lynch does a lot of nighttime roads at night. Like I feel like I don't really remember a lot of Lost Highway. But I feel like all Lost Highway is just like roads <laughs> at night. But like the next thing they see is just like clothes strewn about in the road. And they see a car wreck. And this is where we run into Sherry Lynn Fenn. And she's looking for Robert. And all I could think is that it's still it's Bobby Briggs in that car with her. Oh. She's, nice. She's like, she's like, Robert, where's Robert? And she's like looking for her purse and her brush. Her comb. Her she comb. seems like to have brain damage. She's got the it's sticky really stuff upsetting. in her hair. It, yeah, and she's touching her head and going, oh, what's the sticky stuff? And there's just blood dripping down her face. Oh, it's really upsetting. Yeah, it's very – this is what I mean by like when Lynch – scares me because like reality comes like just barging through the door like in full force like this really feels like a real like accident you know like you would come across a survivor but they'd be like a minute away from dying from a a injury or a wound or something and they'd just be in shock and this girl like basically just lays down and dies in front of them death has sort of been following them this whole movie but, like, seeing this girl die in front of them absolutely ruins Lula. Like, she is just done. It's, like, some of her worst fears, you know? It's, like, the whole, like, the world's a da- big, bad, dangerous place that's coming to an end. And, you know, she's kind of, she's witnessing it. Like, she's actually seeing some firsthand, you know, frontline you know, examples of that. I don't think she can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. I mean, that is, that is a morbid scene right i mean that is gruesome no she handles um, it better than i would have probably yeah i mean no nobody can handle that kind of scene well <laughs> um, well i mean sailor kind of keeps his cool about it you know like he's like we gotta cool get about everything i think he sort of has to be for lula's sake well yeah he really protects her in that way yeah he's the rock that if, oh you mean the rock oh, the rock <laughs> the rock the movie coming up in a couple weeks but like at the same time as all this is happening you see that johnny farragut finally gets to new orleans and he's just like hanging out it's and marietta like comes i think is she basically she realized that she did a bad thing like she shouldn't have like hired santos to kill him right yeah. And she says, like, stay there. I'm going to be there tomorrow. Don't leave. But, like, it's already too late. And one of Santos's contract killers knocks him out and brings him back to this, like, real weird sort of, like, blue velvety room where there's just, like, creepy. Like, all this movie is just, like, creepy people in creepy rooms and just, like, you, like, just having to deal with it. Yeah, that that is definitely, like, a full-on, like, horror film. I mean, I wasn't as as scared there, even though I realized it was a scary situation and everything, but I, I was getting the sense that, like, okay, we're, this scene is David Lynch, like, shooting a horror movie straight up the way he would, you know? It's very expressionistic, it's very bizarre. There's absolutely no idea to, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on, except that they're just trying to, I, I don't know if they're trying to scare Harry Dean Stanton to death before they actually shoot him, <laughs> but it seems to be their goal. And then um, Henrietta shows up at his hotel, and she's like, where is he? And nobody knows where he is. And then one of the bellhops is like, oh, sorry, I had this note. Uh, I went fishing, and I also went buffalo hunting. <laughs> and she's like, what? That doesn't make, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And he's like, I don't know, that's just what the note says. So that's all happening. Then we sort of see, at the same time, we see the other one of Santos's coins when Sailor and Lula finally get to Big Tuna, Texas, and they, they pull over, or they, it seems like he drops Lula off at the hotel, and then goes to that house that we saw earlier, which is Isabella Rossellini's house, and it's that's them 
sort of talking about their days together working with Santos, you know, him asking if there's a contract out for him. Yeah, that's a great pure Lynch scene, too, where they seem to be speaking in some kind of code, <laughs> you know, calling each other, like, by names, <laughs> and he says, like, he, doesn't he call her, God, you leather-skinned son of a bitch, or something like that? I don't know, <laughs> it's just awesome. Like, it's just, you could feel the history between these two people, but, like, I, you know, you almost feel like there was a whole movie before this movie, you know, when they both worked for Santos and had to like deal with like she was like they were competing getaway drivers or something like that but uh, i i love this scene just isabella rossellini is like amazing and like i did not expect her to to sort of like have blonde hair in this movie so that was like jarring too and yeah i don't know i just i really like this uh sequence and i just like to find out what the white house was all about because sort of early on santos makes a phone call and they just cut to the outside of this like little white shack and they play like very foreboding music so i'm like oh man like i can't wait to see like the badass like killer who lives here and then it turns out to be <laughs> Isabella rossellini i was like oh my gosh so i'm thinking she's the she's lying and she's actually gonna kill sailor at some point but like if she was like why wouldn't she just do it then well because it's a game <laughs> i mean the mm. real killer plays games with him too and everyone's sort of plays with their food in this movie a little bit you know yeah that would so- i mean you can't in this movie you're never really totally sure of everyone's motivation at all times and so that's also true for her if you're in the the killing business and like the person you're supposed to kill just comes up to your door that's like i don't know i guess you don't look a gift horse in the mouth but also you want to like work for it a little bit yeah no one wants to go to the supermarket and buy a fish when you can go out and go fishing was this the scene where there was a scene where and this is why i thought that they were twins her and grace zabritsky because uh, there's a picture of them and they're standing Uh, They're, like, sandwiching Santos. They're sandwiching one of the guys. They're each standing on one side of him. And it's the same picture that's in Lost Highway when the two Mm -hmm. Patricia Arquettes are standing with Mr. Eddie. It's, like, the exact same setup. And that's part of the reason I thought they were twins. Oh, see, that's the reason I thought that they were definitely related, but one just felt a little older than the other. So that's why I thought it was, like, mother-daughter kind of thing happening. But, yeah, they're, they're definitely doppelgangers, you know? They're both like these assassins and so it's sort of at this point it's when they're talking at her door that we really sort of get the the full we sort of complete the picture of what happened to lula's dad because he sort of like walks into his past and like walks into but there's more fire imagery there's more flames she's talking about and you sort of see them light her dad on fire and like this is like a, somebody from her past from his past we're finally i mean we're we're sort of i mean not really but we're kind of nearing the end of the movie you're you're sort of getting the complete picture now oh, i think i see it now too now that we're talking it out it's coming clear to me she realizes sailor is dating lula that's when we find out that she was a witness to the murder the burning and everything so cage was the getaway driver isabella rossellini was inside with santos and the mother burning the dad while lula was upstairs so i guess that's their history so yes. like he shows up at the door and she's like whoa now you're dating lula the daughter of the guy we helped kill like you're out of your mind and she tells like the full backstory there we go that sort of makes sense now but as he like walks into his past and sort of has to deal with his past he's also like forced to deal with it because like their car breaks down in big tuna and they're out of money. Yeah, we kind of cut to the motel where we find out Lula's pregnant, right? Like, Cage comes home, and she had thrown up, like, on the floor, and I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, she's pregnant. <laughs> yeah, if a woman throws up in a movie or a TV show, like, she's pregnant. That's the only, <laughs> it's the only way you can show it. And uh, she, like, can't say it, so she writes it down, and, and then Cage gives her, like, the candy bracelet or the candy necklace, 
stuff, and he's like, "Here you go, baby," because <laughs> you're pregnant. Um, and then they <laughs> then they go like outside, and uh, they like hang out with the colorful locals of Big Tuna, Texas. And like this is like the most Lynch this movie really sort of ever is. Yeah. And we see Jack Nance, who until he died, and like the the weirdest like freak bar fight. Um, was in everything that David Lynch ever did. And he's just, he's introduced as this guy who's a rocket scientist, but he just, he's like, he's completely out of his mind. Is he a rocket scientist, guys, or were they just messing with him? I don't know. Let's, <laughs> let's, just, let's, let's, let's spend an hour thinking about it. <laughs> I just love the idea, though, that it, he was at one point like this rocket scientist who is just like a crazy senile old man now. But like, this is what happens to rocket scientists when they get old. Same thing that happens to most of us, you know, nothing special. And he has this speech that I guess kind of sums up the movie. My dog barks some. Mentally, you picture my dog, but I have not told you the type dog which I have. Perhaps you might even picture Toto from The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) But I can tell you my dog is always with me. But like him mentioning Toto in that, like it's sort of like, hey, you know, I'm telling you this story and you're thinking about something. You might even be thinking about the Wizard of Oz, but like I'm not saying it's the Wizard of Oz. Like it's it's a little meta maybe, or maybe it's just complete nonsense and I'm just trying to draw you know, I'm trying to figure out what it means. No, I, I think I think it it can be taken as to be a self-aware moment where the film is like kind of saying, you know, like we've been dropping these lines here and there, and I just want you to make sure like you're paying attention. Like now is the time to let you know, like yeah, it's all in. Te- you know, it's sort of again. Let's go back to Valley Girl. <laughs> Valley Girl is loosely based on Romeo and Juliet, and there's sort of these thematic parallels. But then at one point in the movie, they walk out of seeing. They walk out of a movie theater, and on the marquee it says Romeo and Juliet. Just in case you weren't sure. I wonder if they tested this movie for audiences. And people thought when the Good Witch shows up at the end, like, it's too out of nowhere. And so the studio goes to David Lynch and says, hey, like, you need to, like, add in a little, a couple things earlier in the movie. And he's like, all right, fine, whatever, but I'm going to do it in my way. And so that's when he has the Wicked Witch flying next to the car. And he has Jack Nance come in and just, like, in this, like, completely illogical speech mentions Toto. Like, I just sort of like, I, I don't know if that's how it happened. I don't think it is. But I like that it's it sort of could be David Lynch's, like, all right, if you want me to introduce this Wizard of Oz team and make it blatantly obvious to people, I'm going to do it my weirdo way. Oh, see, I like that, because by the time this was happening, I felt very beat over the head with it. So I like the idea that maybe it wasn't all always there that obviously. Because I don't think that David Lynch has ever been like a director that sort of no. holds your hand through movies. No. And there's so much that's like over the head and over the top. It would, it would sort of be kind of cool as like a screw you to the movie studio that like okay you you want me to like make it clear that the wizard of oz is in this movie all right i'm gonna make it really clear <laughs> but the, so then after jack nance has this speech then we meet the scariest guy in the entire movie bobby peru <laughs> just like the country 
And that's saying a lot, that he's the scariest guy in this movie. He's not just the scariest guy in the movie, but there are shots of him that some of it is, like, some of the scariest stuff I've ever seen. Yeah, he's like a monster from, like, a universal monster (laughs) movie. Like, he is straight up, like, yeah, like a Freddy or a Jason or something like that. (laughs) His teeth are just awful and terrifying. Ugh. And later when the stocking is over his face and you see his teeth, it's even worse. And so his backstory is that he was, like, in Nam in the shit, right? And, like... Cage Nexion. Yep, Cage Nexion with Nam. Um, and, like, he, he, like, committed some terrible atrocities, like we hear lots of Americans did, I guess, or just Vietnam was a mess. But he's, like, a Marine, and he's been sort of scarred by Nam, and, like, he was released back into America to go and be, like, a criminal. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he makes a point of letting us know like how super dangerous and like how quickly his mood can swing and things like that right in this opening scene of his there's so much going on in the scene that doesn't really have anything to do with the plot aside from just being world building like we were talking about before like there's the one trailer where they're shooting a porno texas style and there's just the, the three gigantic women who are just almost completely naked just come out and dance around for a little bit you see the uh the silent cowboy all in black who I sort of would like to think it's the same cowboy in Mulholland Drive, <laughs> that like all these characters just sort of shift around in Lynch's world. But there's just so many characters that you're meeting here. There's the two like weirdo guys who are sort of our guides through this madness. There's so much happening here. It's so Lynch and so wonderful. I feel a little bit opposite about it. It is so Lynch. But because there's all these characters that are kind of coming out of nowhere, in the moment, it's cool, but you're saying all those characters, and I totally (laughs) forgot all of them were there. And you say the ladies, and I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the porno. But it makes me check out of it a little bit. It's maybe it's just a little bit too much for me. So it's all just sort of a lead up to Bobby Peru showing up, you know, yeah. and 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 those other guys are kind of there to validate, you know, how much of a badass this guy is, and like he's the meanest mother ever that you know you're ever going to meet, and all this stuff. So when you just get like a little taste of them, you know, yeah, look at this guy, he's a crazy old man. Listen to him, like what are you doing in this part of town? Like you just get a little bit of that, and then you see, you know, how they validate this Bobby guy. So it, they're just sort of. Like like his little choir i felt like just for the moment to sort of pump him up a little bit but yeah it is it is a bit like (laughs) it's very jam-packed this moment you're right it's like (laughs) everything in the kitchen sink about david lynch is like right here and it's around this time when lula flashes back to her abortion it's when she tells sailor that he uh, that she's pregnant and then cage leaves he was fixing his car, but for some reason the car wasn't in the motel parking lot. I think it's where it was broken down on the side of the road, but I wasn't quite clear. I thought perhaps it was at the mechanics. And Bobby Peru shows up, and like this scene reminded me, again, to go back to True Romance, it reminds me sort of of when James Gandolfini shows up when Clarence goes to pick up burgers at the end of the movie, and Alabama's just alone in that hotel room, and like just like this pure evil walks in. And it's just this girl that you, like, fall in love with and just, like, doesn't necessarily know how to handle herself. It's, like, innocence and evil just clashing in the same scene. It's like a roller coaster scene, you know? Like, uh, it just goes back and forth so much. It just, like, drove me crazy. Like, I was very uncomfortable the entire 
time watching this. And Lula's uncomfortable, too, because as soon as Bobby Peru leaves, she puts on her ruby red slippers and clicks her heels together, and just really, she's she's done with this world. She just wants to go back home. Do you want to talk about what Bobby does, like, for a minute? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really want to talk about it, but he's just, like, yeah. he, like, he, he's just, like, assaulting her, like, verbally at first, right? And then, like, yep. like says he wants to fuck her, and, like, all, it's just so bizarre. And just, like, this very uncomfortable, like, I don't know. I just, I even feel weird talking about it, you know, because it's just this guy, like, showing her just how dangerous he is, and it's just like, she's in an inescapable situation, you know, the best you could hope for is that he, like, leaves on his own volition, and thankfully that happens eventually. Eventually, but, like, not not until after he, like, sort of does some irreparable damage to Lula. Yeah, and I mean, she's in this scary place all alone, like, we met the people last night that are there, they're they're not going to help her, the door is closed, sailors left her, it's very scary. Again, just sort of like when she saw Sherry Lynn Fenn on the highway, this kind of breaks her, and that's when, and this is when she says the, the, the first of the two, I guess, titular lines of the movie, she just says to sail, it's, this whole world is wild at heart and weird on top. Did Bobby peruse a black angel sail? You hook up with him and you'll regret it. If you live to. Thanks, darling. I know you got my best interests in mind. I appreciate it sincerely. I love you, but I gotta get some sleep now. This whole world's wild at heart and weird on top. Oh, I should say me love me. Oh, I wish I was somewhere over there right now. It's just shit. Shit, shit, shit. Nothing makes sense anymore, or like, or everything makes too much sense. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, she knows exactly, like, people are just bad and evil, and there's just no controlling, and there's no way to sort of protect yourself against the evils of the world. Well, and in a way, we we watch her kind of learn that because she goes from being this girl in this bubble to all of a sudden being faced with like several very scary things happening to her right up in her face. And she goes through a transformation over the movie. She learns to deal with it a little better, don't you think? Yeah, I definitely feel like she's stronger after this scene. What's interesting is that at this point, she knows she's pregnant. So she's like, this is the world that like I'm thinking the way she must be thinking is like this is the kind of world i'm gonna bring a baby into with these type of people out there yeah they grow up to be this kind of guy i think there's a lot more than just like the physical fear that she's like experiencing i think like inside after this whole experience all that shit's running through her mind and when she's looking in the mirror and there's just that vampire kiss type shot where she's looking in the mirror and just like breaking down like i don't know i kind of see her working through it like is she gonna keep it is she gonna get rid of it like it's just madness yeah this movie quickly gets like super real you know (laughs) reality all over the face at the end of this movie so after bobby peru sort of leaves his mark on lula he then goes over to to sailor and to sort of alter his path through this movie basically tries like does his part in trying to convince sailor to return to his life of crime they have no money they really have no plan to get money i mean both the sailor's parents are dead Lula's mom wants to kill Sailor. Like, they don't have anybody in their life that can send the money. When he's broken parole, too, so it's not like he can just go work. Right. Although I feel like in Big Tuna, you could probably get a job without, like, actually having to prove who you are. You want to stay in Big Tuna? (laughs) There's, like, yeah, are there even any stores there? (laughs) 
It's literally like purgatory. There's like nothing going on. Well, there is a bank, which is what they how to get the money. They but go and rob seed, the bank. Isn't there like a seed? It's a seed bank, though. Like it's not even money. It's like grain and stuff. It's it's not a good plan, Bobby Cruz's plan. It's. <laughs> But this does this whole scene of them because Bobby Peru convinces Sailor to go rob this bank with him. It does lead to two Cajun actions. First of all, we have raising Arizona, him wearing the pantyhose on his head. But second, more importantly, we have to give a big shout out to the nerd in Peggy Sue Got Married for going and inventing pantyhose. Otherwise, we would never have the scene because pantyhose would never be invented <laughs> if Peggy Sue didn't tell him about it. That's right. <laughs> didn't think of that while I was watching, but it definitely- man, I love I love these Cajun actions. I love the sequence when uh, Bobby's trying to convince Sailor to rob the bank or to do the hold-up. Yeah, to do the crime because he's like super two-faced and duplicitous. Like we just saw him assault Lula and now he's going over and like being best friends with Sailor, you know? And it's just like, again, it's just like we know he's evil. Like it's almost like one step too many (laughs) to a degree, you know? It's like the Wizard of Oz thing. I think we got it at this point, but I felt like mentioning it because um, I actually thought Nick Cage was going to end up killing him in the bar because Bobby just sort of reveals like, oh, he knows Lula is pregnant he knows you need money you know, all this all that uh and nick just can't like figure out like what to do well and he's still trying to be the rock for lula and he's totally out of ways to do it and this is kind of his only choice at this point mm, yeah they go to the bank and bobby Pru is just like over the top aggressive they successfully rob it for whatever they're gonna get and then he just shoots at the bank tellers even though he doesn't need to and sailor is not okay with this level of aggression and just tries to that's when he tries to kill Bobby Peru except Bobby Peru gave him blanks like he he was going to screw him all along yeah there were no bullets in the gun and there no was bullets. like we find out that uh, Bobby is the other assassin sent uh, he was sent a coin and he's supposed to kill Sailor and the whole, his whole his whole way of going about it was to murder him during the bank robbery, <laughs> like get him to rob this place first, like use him and then kill him. Like it's just crazy on Which top I, of crazy. But I guess I guess it makes sense. I'm not sure. But, uh, it but, makes a certain kind of sense if you're crazy, I guess. If you're Bobby Peru, it's a great plan. But things don't go according to plan because there's a cop outside. Bobby basically commits suicide by cop. That Cage just lays down and waits to be arrested. Oh, Bobby Peru, by the way, is played by Willem Dafoe in like a, a, a terrific performance. Um, I don't think we ever said who played him, but Bobby Peru just tries like to shoot at the cop, and I thought, that, I, 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 for some reason, I had in my mind that he killed the cop, but no, the cop just puts like eight bullets into him, and then Bobby Peru blasts his own head off with a shotgun. When I first saw that, it was one of the most shocking things I'd ever seen, ever. But it's not like, like there was just a TV finale where somebody's head gets blasted off with a shotgun, and like it's sort of more realistic in terms of how that would actually happen. <laughs> But this, his whole head just, like, comes oh, off Oh, yeah, the no, this is very, and, like, Tarantino, a little bit over-the-top cartoon violent. I think it's it's so unexpected, you know? Like, he's already been shot to death by this cop, and then he just sort of falls onto his... <laughs> his head, like, falls onto his gun and blows his head off, you know? Like, uh, it's Elmer Fudd style to me. Yeah. Like, like, it's way more graphic than the opening fight, but it comes across to me as, like, much more of, like, a satirical note than anything else. It's just... Like it's so fight. unexpected, though. And so the, the fallout from this is that Cage gets arrested again and goes back to jail. Wait, I yeah. have a comment about before the bank robbery. Because I thought it was a really interesting turn in the movie in their relationship where he's trying to do this for them. And it seemed to me like they both knew something was going to happen. She kind of 
lets him do it, even though she doesn't know what he's up to, but she knows it's not something good. This is the part of the movie where they really lose each other for a second and really are not speaking with each other well or honest with each other at all. And I just thought that that was interesting, that they both kind of just let it happen. Like, this is the turn of events that has to happen in our relationship right now. It's interesting. Like, that's the scene where he you see him in his in his black tidy whiteies too. I just thought yeah. Cage in his black underwear. Just a bit of levity for this very, like, heavy scene here. But, like, you're so right. Like, it's the one, like, they'll never lie to each other. In order to, like, never do that, they will, they'd rather not speak to each other, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, they, you know, they just, they just constantly want to tell each other the truth. So, in order to keep telling the truth, they just don't talk, really. They just don't directly talk about it or reference it like what he's gonna do and they're both in all black like right before it happens and it's really like they're both mourning it like they don't know what's about to happen but they both know it's not gonna be something good the only bad can come even if even if it like leads to something good it's gonna be bad before it's ever good again yeah Yeah. and it is bad before it ever gets good again because this is when he goes to jail for Five years, ten months, and twenty-one days. <laughs> I love how there's no attention paid to his prison sentence whatsoever. Like as if it just doesn't affect the character whatsoever. You know, it's just <laughs> like a blink in his life. He's like, yeah, I went to jail, and then I got out of jail. That's how cool yep. he is. Exactly. He's yeah. just so chill. Lula's on her way to pick him up, and she almost gets into a car accident, Mike, with a red sports car. I saw that. Another connection. Another cage in action. And the man in red... So in my mind, this this is such a stretch, but the, the, the red sports car from Never on Tuesday has gone from Ohio down to Big Tuna, Texas, and almost runs into Lula. I mean, and she would have fallen in love with him because, I mean, he's, a, he's got the red sports car. Well, we're going to have to keep track of how many times the red sports car shows up in the rest of the cage club from now on. Cause it, what if it's in every movie and you haven't noticed it? That would be like a lost level <laughs> conspiracy of like filmmaking i don't know but it would be amazing but they finally she picks him up at jail again and they're reunited but instead of this like happy ending it all sort of becomes too much for lula like she's there or they're there with their six-year-old son pace that she decided to keep the kid even though she wasn't sure before whether she not whether or not she's going to but i think that when sailor goes to jail it's like she can hold on to a piece of sailor even when he's not with her he's there and he's never met sailor and like it's it's so emotional and instead of this like big happy reunion ending lula's like i can't do this and it's it's almost like it's not the ending that you expect it's it's but it's also kind of like realistic in a way that the movie isn't you know what i mean yeah i'm under the impression though they there's no way to know this that while he was in jail i mean one they never went to see him they could have right um she made the choice to stay away from him presumably she did a lot of work on herself while he was away and we meet her again five years and ten months later and she's a different person i assume we don't have that much happening that we could totally know that but it looks like she's done a lot of work on herself but she also went from, you know, 20 to, like, 26 in that time. You know what She's I mean? She's a grown-up so, now. Yeah, five and, years is a lot longer than 22 months to be apart, you know? Yeah. And so I just feel like when they got out and saw each other again, they might have realized, like, you know what? Like, maybe it ran its course, or you know? And uh, I think it's, you know, it's, unex- it's kind of unexpected because they've been in love the whole movie, but it's definitely plausible, you know? I definitely sense, like, the realism. Because their love is so established it sort of makes sense that, like, Sailor loves Lula so much that he's willing to let her go that she's like, I can't do this. He's like, you know, I totally get it. Don't ruin this kid's life. He doesn't know me. He's never met me. He loves her so much that he wants her to be happy, even if that means that he's not going to be with her, which is sort of, it's just beautiful. But 
I think Sailor also has this idea of himself that he's no good for anybody. You know, he was a criminal. He didn't really have parents. And that's part of the special thing that Lula does for him is she makes him feel like he's worth something. But I think that idea that somebody would be better off without him is pretty easy for him to accept. Yeah, we we even see H.I. write a letter to Ed in Raising Arizona where he's like, you know, you guys, I'm leaving. You guys are better off without me because, like, everything I do turns to shit, you know? Like, every time I try and, and help, I just end up hurting. So, yeah, you know, it's sort of on the same level. But before he really sort of, wa- he, and he does walk away, but before he walks away, he gives a little bit of paternal guidance to his son. Oye, amigo, if ever something don't feel right to you, remember what Pancho said to the Cisco kid. Let's win before we're dancing at the end of a rope without music. Really quickly before we move on. Uh, one more cage connection, one more cage connection here. Uh, this is the first of two movies where his character is in prison when his child is growing up and meets him for the first time when he gets released. Oh, yeah, along with Con Air, right? So this in Con Air. <laughs> I mean, maybe more. We don't know, but at least two. At least two. I and also so he- noticed for the first time, before he walks away, he gives his son a lion, a lion for courage, oh. which I never noticed and, before. And doesn't he have a stuffed animal in Con Air, too? Like, that's the whole thing. There is, yeah. yeah. Yep, it's the, they're the same. They're the same character, guys. <laughs> Definitely um, the same guy. And so Cage walks away, and Laura Dern is like brokenhearted. Like even though she knows that this is good, it's it's incredibly difficult to do it at this time. And Cage walks away, and I wrote down these are basically the Wicked Witch's monkeys. Like they're there to just sort of cause havoc. Like this whole gang, straight out of Rumblefish, maybe this whole gang of bikers essentially comes and circles around Cage. And Cage has, I guess it goes back to what Jordan was saying, that he's no good for anybody. He just, like, doesn't care about himself. He just goes to antagonize them. What do you faggots want? Like, why, why would you say that? Because he's down on himself. He doesn't have anything. <laughs> they all take him, they, they take him on, and they just beat him down. They knock him out. And then in a sequence that you're not sure if it's real or not, but it also fits within the mythology of this movie, the good witch shows up, and it's Laura Palmer, it's Cheryl Lee, she just drops down, and just says, don't turn away from love, like she gives him this whole motivational speech. Sailor. Sailor. The good witch. Sailor Ripley, Luna loves you. But I'm a robber. I'm a manslaughterer, and I haven't had any parental guidance. She's forgiven you all these things. You love her. Don't be afraid, sailor. But I'm wild at heart. If you're truly wild at heart, you'll fight for your dreams. There's no mistaking it's definitely supposed to be Glenda the Good Witch either because she's in the pink outfit dress <laughs> in, in, in a 
soap bubble. Like, you know, it is clear trademark infringement, whatever's going on here. I, I just love just how inside of Sailor's mind, you know, at his lowest point, the thing he comes to is Glenda the Good Witch, you know, just the most pure and good thing <laughs> that he could think of. Like, it's just amazing to me, this character we've seen this whole movie, and, and, and that's what he's thinking about. And it's like exactly what he needs because he snaps back to reality stands up, apologizes to the guys around him, and then goes to run off after Lula. Had enough, asshole? Yes, I have. And I want to apologize to you gentlemen for referring to you as homosexuals. I also want to thank you, fellas. You've taught me a valuable lesson in life. And then, like, in just great filmmaking, there's a car accident, and there's all these cars stopped, and he's just sprinting over top the cars to get to Lula. I caught a quick reference to that. In the beginning of the film, Lula says that there's a whole lot of traffic these days, more than there used to be. And the whole movie, you don't see, like, another car on the road until this last scene, where it's a traffic jam. And he's running back to her and he's like running on top of the cars and everything. And it's such an amazing shot too. Like it is just a beautiful shot. And then he like lands on the hood of her car. (laughs) In like the perfect end fitting symbolism of the movie, as he sort of comes to the reality that we're going to get through this because like I'm meant to be with her. You see Marietta and you see like her like reflection or her, her little picture and there's like a spilled drink across it. And she she melts. Like, her picture evaporates from the frame. <laughs> like, the Wicked Witch dies at the end of this movie, not because she had water poured on her, but because Sailor and Lula found love. That was hilarious when Lula, like, hangs up the phone, when she's like, I'm picking him up from jail again, and hangs up the phone and, like, throws a glass of water at the picture. I'm like, well, that was, like, interesting. I wonder if that was just, like, improv or something. But no, like, it, it's symbolic. Like, at the end, the photo washed away the image of the mother, just like the Wicked could wish got washed away and so cage is running atop the cars and finally catches up to lula and what does he do he does the only thing that he can do he sings her love me tender and it's like it's it made me so happy like all these endings to cage movies have sort of come out of nowhere they've all been disjointed and like some of them like birdie are like really great but they they don't really like end the way that you sort of want them to or the end that they deserve but this is exactly the ending that this movie deserves. Yeah, and, and they kind of have switched roles a little bit, where, like, before, she needed him to take care of her, and now he's running back to her, and, you know, she's this woman taking care of their kid, and she's like, I can do this without you, Let's. I'm going to do this without you. And he goes back to her, and he's all gross, his, like, nose is giant because he got punched in the face. He's, like, at a very low point, and he goes back <laughs> to her because he needs her. Yeah, I love that. They make it, like, completely clear and one scene that like he just can't take care of himself you know yeah. like he, yeah he's away from her from a minute and he like gets into a fight and almost dies like breaks his nose <laughs> and everything so like he realizes immediately like okay like i i need some help I, you know we're i need we're a team and that's just how the movie ends like they're reunited they are a team they're the love story that's meant to be and we we go out on that but we sort of get a, a sense of like what the love story what it could have been in a little bit, but before we get to Industrial Symphony number one, which is a little bit of a bonus thing on this episode, the couple last points that I want to bring up, um, Diane Ladd, who played Marietta, received a Supporting Actress nomination, Best Supporting Actress nomination at both the Oscars and the Golden Globes. David Lynch won the Palme d'Or, Palme d'Or at Cannes for this movie. 
this is the only David Lynch movie that ever got a sequel. He didn't direct it, but uh, the movie that came out, I think, like in 97, Perdita Durango, which is another one of these seven stories, the Sailor and Lula stories. This is about a character. It's about Isabella Rossellini's character. But even Isabella Rossellini isn't in it. It's some other actress. It's Rosie so Perez. It's like, I think that's like the only one of the Sailor and Lula stories that like they're just not in. Like all the stories are about them. They follow their lives. But there's one that's just in the same world, not about them. Anything else to talk about Wild at Heart before we move on to Industrial Symphony? I, I was reading about it before I watched it again. And that scene where they're torturing Johnny Farragut was cut because people were walking out of the movie because it was so gross. I thought that was interesting that it used to be worse than it is now. Yeah. I'm Anything gonna, else, Mike, about this? No, no we, can, we can move on. The same year that Wild at Heart came out, David Lynch directed another thing, Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, The Dream of the Broken Hearted. The story behind this, and there's a... Mike, did you watch the interview? Was there an interview on your DVD? Oh, no, I didn't see an interview. There was a 10-minute interview with David Lynch and Angela Badalamenti and Julie Cruz, who plays the singing, the, the spirit of the broken hearted, where they're just talking about like, the, how this came to be. And the Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, was commissioning a stage production for this opening that they were doing. And all they had was the name, in, uh, Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, and they said, yes, that's, it. that's exactly what they want. And so David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti had to come up with this story of like what they were going to do. And what this basically is, it's the same year that Wild at Heart came out. It's with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern for like a minute, maybe, if that. They're on the phone and he breaks up with her. So sort of in a little bit, it's almost like what would have happened, like what Lula would have gone home to dream about that night if Sailor hadn't met the Good Witch and come back to her. They don't say straight up that it's Sailor and Lula. No, they're never actually named. He's like the heartbreaker and she's just like the brokenhearted. Yeah, but he's doing the Elvis voice and she's got her southern accent and I mean it's the same year. And they they look like I definitely thought I was like I saw it and I was like, That's definitely Lula, but he was so not over the top. I mean he was sad, he was breaking up with her. Yeah, he was. It was just much more like artsy too in the sense like they're just uh, isolated in black backgrounds and not even in, they're on the phone so it's very strange <laughs> the whole thing is on YouTube it's, it's, it's a stage production um, it's sort of like the the best Cirque du Soleil ever um, I think Jordan you were saying that like it, it inspires you that like, you have a new career goal now to, oh like, I want to make this? this a circus show now because <laughs> it would be much better first of all <laughs> Much more interesting. But no, the set pieces were, uh, I mean, the Julie Cruz is suspended almost the whole time in a harness and she's just floating around the stage. And the rest of the set is like other people on harnesses and people climbing things. It would be a beautiful circus show. It's very creepy, but beautiful. And you can't forget the hundred baby dolls that come that descend down from the rafters and they're all like burnt and disfigured i fell asleep i didn't see that part. well didn't didn't she also like uh, wasn't part of it like uh her character gets caught in the wires and fries as well and falls to the ground I and it's so. oh, I yeah. loved as, that as, as like a giant deer demon or something like I loved that. that part oh my god that deer demon was terrifying <laughs> i was sort um, of I mean, like not paying attention for a minute and then she gets fried and like for the rest of it my eyes were glued i was her. falling asleep and i heard that noise and i was like what what i'm i'm here <laughs> and i had to rewind it and watch that again because i really liked that part yeah this is uh it's only 39 minutes long it's all on youtube someone's uploaded to youtube it came out the same year as wild at heart so it's in the same time period as twin peaks it sounds like Twin Peaks music. Then I looked it up. It just it is Twin it Peaks is music. Twin Pe- it just felt like, they like just Twin took Peaks. It. it felt like Twin Peaks leftovers. They were like, "This is kind of what's still in our brain right now. Put it on a stage." 
it sort of answers the question, the man from somewhere else, like, what is he doing when he's not in that red room, and he's just out in the woods just cutting logs? <laughs> yeah, I really know, liked that part, too. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so this is the origin of the log lady's log. Like, this is where <laughs> it came from. We're getting a little bit of uh, backstory here. The other thing that sort of, like, just like Wild at Heart, this has, like, really sort of crazy tonal shifts in music. Like, it's essentially ten songs that make up this 40 minutes, and sometimes it's just like in total industrial sounds of metal and saws. And then sometimes it's just Julie Cruz singing and putting Jordan to sleep. Like it goes back and forth, like how the, the Psycho Billy in Wild the Heart just sort of comes out of nowhere. But even like within that, like there's that one great song that was in Rocking Twin back Peaks. Inside yeah, my heart. like that song's not boring at all. It's a great song. And it's it seems song. so out of place. But I love that song. Yeah, I actually found myself enjoying this way more than I was <laughs> ever expecting to. But it's. Totally unlike most things I watch, you know? Like, uh, I don't think I'll go out and try and find some more of stuff like this, but it was pretty interesting. Parts of it also reminded me of that short that he did around Inland Empire with the rabbits. It's sort of a sitcom-y thing, like, but they're all rabbits and it's all lynch, so it's all creepy, but it's in black and white. Like, his movies are weird, but when he has the freedom to go do something that's not that doesn't have to be commercially successful, even a little bit. Like he gets like real weird with it. Yeah, well, he that's like his background, right? He's just like a straight up came from like he's like an art student, like yeah. design major. You know, even like mm-hmm. a racer head, like is kind of see a little bit of a racer head in in the industrial symphony. You know, as far as like the set dressing and stuff like that, and just the industrial landscape. But yeah, you know, I, I feel like this is his uh, sandbox. You know, like he knows what he's doing. He knows there's there's a method to this chaos, even if we're not sure what's going on i'm sure it's like extremely calculated so that was it this was cage club for more things on cage club for all of our podcasts and all of our reviews and such go to cageclub.me you can find out how to subscribe to this place subscribe to this podcast on itunes you can find out how to follow us on twitter i think jordan will return to a future podcast episode i sure will Uh, i don't think it's going to be two hours long again but it it could be i'll do my best this was a delight thank you jordan (laughs) Thank you, guys. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. With us is Jordan Pullen Clark. We will see you next time on Cage Club. Love me tender. Love me sweet. Oh
Dream.